Hello and welcome to the Tech Disputes Network's Need to Know podcast series. If you haven't been listening so far, Need to Know delivers to your inbox short and accessible podcasts from the experts in the field on the latest developments in technology from the perspective of how they might go wrong. My name is Sam Roberts. I'm a partner at Cook, Young & Keaton and one of the founders of TDN. Today, we're very lucky to have Matt McGee talking about the recently published second edition of his book, A Practical Guide to Cyber Fraud Litigation. By way of very brief introduction to this renaissance man, Matt is a commercial barrister at 20 Essex and has a particular interest in civil fraud litigation. He has been heavily involved in a variety of cases arising out of cyber fraud, including claims against the anonymous fraudsters themselves, as well as claiming against or defending financial institutions which have become caught up in a fraud. Accolades roll off him, and on top of being an acclaimed barrister and published author, he is an avid cyclist, upsettingly fast marathon runner, and dad. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Uh, a pleasure. I'm I'm thrown by never having been uh, described as a renaissance man before, but I'm going to treasure that one. <laughs> you can chuck that on your website profile. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, where did you come up with the idea for writing your book? I mean, it's something that I've always had very much back of mind as something to do when I have the time, which in answer is ultimately never. But um, in a nutshell, I've I've always fancied in a way moonlighting as an academic and uh, getting into the weeds on some legal issues. And that, I think, is one of the, the real privileges that we have in working on real life cases, which inevitably throw up points that you never would have come across or, or, or thought up had you just been sitting and blue sky thinking. Um, in my specific case, I ended up having a run of a few cases dealing with these sorts of topics, um, one of which was CMOC, which we, of course, worked on together. Mm-hmm. And then off the back of the judgment in that case, actually, the publishers contacted me uh, and saying, is this something that you'd be interested in uh, working up into a book of some sort? And um, really, I, I, I could hardly say no when they waved that carrot in, in front of me. <laughs> Excellent. So um, would you, uh, is this, was this sort of an enjoyable, um, I, I don't believe the publishers are on the, on the sort of distribution list for this podcast. So you can, uh, <laughs> You can you can tell us the truth. Was was it an enjoyable experience? Slightly stressful? Um, would you do it again? Um, I think yes, enjoyable. Yes, slightly stressful. Although I can genuinely say the publishers were um, a delight and excellent. Uh, their you know, gentle reminders only got um, ever so slightly more insistent as I kept on pushing back deadlines. <laughs> um, but it, it was. Uh, it was an excellent experience to just have a little bit of freedom to really take the topic where I wanted to. And the nice bit about the publishers is they were quite happy to just leave me to it and take the topic in the direction I fancied. Uh, and it was really left up to me not to go down too many rabbit holes along the way. Um, and is it something you'd sort of recommend to others if they get the opportunity? Definitely. Um, I, I as you as you sit on your piles of royalties from uh, from from the sales. Uh, well, I mean, with that in mind, I would say go into it with your eyes open. Um, unless you're going to go and write Harry Potter, you're not going to make much money in uh, the legal publishing world. Um, but it, it was a a nice excuse to just take a little bit of time out of um, the, the fury of full time practice to spend a bit of time just essentially following lines of thought which sometimes um, understandably clients don't want to pay you to go and uh, follow through the exciting and novel point you've come up with they'd much rather the straightforward answer that's going to get them a, a result they want quicker yeah um 
So my concern, um, I, I I have tried my hand at uh, writing a book before, but it was a um, it was a satirical novel, um, uh, which I self published on Amazon, and I believe it sold about twelve copies. So I think you're sort of relatively successful compared to to my offering. But if I were writing something serious like this, my concern would be that I'd turn up in court and someone would try and cite my book back at me, and it would be awfully difficult to try and. Uh, squirrel out from under that. Um, is that a concern? I, I think probably something that I, I I can say now that I'd quite enjoy rather than be worried about. That it might be a different matter at the time if I if I feel like I am on totally the wrong side. <laughs> um, I, I have had the unfortunate instance of somebody citing an article I'd written against me once, and it seemed to me that there's two ways that you can play it. Either, as happily was the case there you can say that you understood a, a nuance that perhaps didn't come through as clearly in the in the article as it ought to have done and that therefore you can sideline it and that the point's distinguishable. Alternatively, just I think the answer is to claim fallibility. Um, I, you know, in the book, I have expressed some views on undecided areas, um, their personal views, but that does not necessarily mean that they're the correct views. Um, regrettably, history shows that judges don't agree with me automatically 100% of the time. <laughs> um, so if it did come up, well, perhaps on further reflection, um, additional authorities, I've, I've changed my view. Or the other benefit is always being able to say, ultimately, you are an advocate for your client. And um, that may mean putting forward a case that you don't personally agree with. But that doesn't mean that it's the wrong case to advance. And mm -hmm. there, there are certainly some areas of quite settled law that personally I, I i might tweak if i had freedom to but so that's the state of situation and, and that's the game we play fair enough um when opening the book the first thing that you are greeted with is a georgian proverb which says if you forgive the fox for stealing your chickens he will take your sheep what does that mean uh, it, the genuine meaning of it uh, i'm not entirely sure but what i took from it was um essentially don't let the fraudsters get away with it. Um, yeah, that that was why I decided to put it in. Uh, obviously, a large part of it, um, the book and the topic of dealing with cyber fraud is how you go about identifying and chasing after and recovering from cyber fraudsters. Um, no introduction is needed as to how difficult that can be when they're all around the world in in bedrooms and whatnot on computers. So yes, the the idea was more about ensuring that you know, people don't get away with it don't let them get away with it once because as these things are they tend to be run on an industrial scale and when they start getting a bit of success they'll just keep on rolling it mm. so um, it, it was to my mind a way of just trying to get at them and say fine let's make a start but uh, I, I suppose the book is not limited to going after fraudsters I think about other things such as you know, banks and, and the crypto exchanges how they could be held liable I don't think uh, I'd describe the banks as foxes, but uh, perhaps the same sort of logic can apply. But you you can certainly persuade a bank to try and give you some chickens, perhaps, if you've lost them to the fox. We'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, maybe we will get into this, but this is the um, second edition. What has changed since the first edition? Beyond a chance for me to go back and, and fix any typos or uh, misadvised opinions on the law or address uh, points made against you uh, by your opponents exactly just, just fortify those ones um <laughs> no, the, the main changes really were to expand on on crypto because at the time that i wrote the first edition i think there were only about three cases that had been reported 
So that obviously has seen a lot of development in the last few years, and I'm sure we'll see an awful lot more. Other areas have been similar in the sense of sudden renewed focus on things such as bringing claims against banks to recover losses from fraud, and both the victim's own bank and also the bank that uh, received the fraudulent funds on behalf of the fraudsters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've got a sort of few a few talking points. Um, you and I, for the benefit of the uh, of the the thousands of listeners that we have, um, you and I exchanged a few um, points of of interest, sort of plucked from um, all of you. your book. I have to say, um, just looking through the table of contents is uh, incredibly comprehensive. Um, looking at these sorts of claims from from every single possible angle, we obviously don't have time to go into each one of those. So um, you and I kind of agreed uh, a list of a few points which we thought um, might be um, interesting, sort of dotted around different stages of these sorts of claims um, to 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 go through. Um, so one, I guess, um, that naturally arises at the beginning of a claim um, is service. Um, so we've obviously got these new service gateways in practice direction 6B. Um, there's been some controversy in the past over whether bankers trust orders and Norwich Pharmacal orders can be served outside the jurisdiction. There's been several cases saying that bankers trust can both in crypto a crypto context and a non-crypto context. And famously, the AB Bank case says that um, Norwich Pharmacal orders or applications cannot. Um, is that distinction just completely gone now, do you think, because of the new gateway? I think probably practically most people are going to look at the new gateway and and not worry about the slightly more arcane distinction that seems to have been drawn between Norwich Farmers and Bankers Trust. But I do think that there is a distinction still to be drawn there. And it's one that could be relevant in the right case. So um, I, I think that the key distinction is that there is a bit of a slightly academic debate as to whether Norwich Farmers and Bankers Trust come from the same basic jurisdiction or whether they are just very similar but distinct forms of relief. I think my personal view, and again, I may be cited on this and I may be wrong, um, but my personal view is that they are separate. And that's the reason why you've got the different treatment between AB Bank and the likes of AA and Persons Unknown. We now have the new service gateway and we've now had a case dealing with the new service gateway in Bitflyer. And probably I would have thought most claimants are going to look at that sort of situation and say, is it enough to just get what we can get under the new gateway, um, which is limited to um, information about the true identity of a particular individual fraudster um, or the whereabouts of essentially misappropriated property. So uh, those are ultimately the things that most people are interested in, but Norwich Pharmacal and Bankers Trust applications as made in these sorts of cases to date aren't necessarily so restricted, those particular categories of information. So if you are wanting to cast the net a bit broader, then perhaps you do need to be prepared to justify going outside of the gateway and or, or outside of the new gateway and finding some alternative broader way to um, to get your service out. It's definitely the bankers trust jurisdiction particularly is very broad talking about you know, lifting the latch on the banker's door and there's all this very emotive language essentially saying you can go and get the lot. Um, that is obviously incredibly helpful, particularly if um, you may have half a half minds to thinking 
if the fraudster does get away with it, I, I want to have all of the information I possibly can to know who else might be a target. Was there an accessory to this or, or indeed, is there something wrong with the bank itself that I can look at? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the, the new gateway, I think, would probably trim those sort of wider searches down. Um, while we're on the subject of um, something wrong at the bank itself, I think those were your words or something like that. Um, you mentioned um, earlier that um, you're seeing a uh, sort of returning market, I guess, or or a new market in claimants looking to financial institutions um, to make good their losses if they can't go over the after the fraudster or or try to and 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 can't make a recovery. Um, the Philip and Barclays case is obviously one that um, everybody is watching. Um, Supreme Court decision awaited. Um, I think we were exchanging emails before the podcast that inevitably whatever we say now will probably be uh, irrelevant when the decision is uh, handed down in the coming days. But um, what do you think is um, behind this sort of renewed interest in um, going after financial institutions? I I suppose there's push and pull factors, aren't there? The the push factor is that it is sometimes hard or at the very least um, a difficult thing to justify commercially going chasing after anonymous fraudsters. You could end up throwing an awful lot of good money after trying to follow the the money that's been lost. So uh, there is a desire to look elsewhere and see, well, who else might have the money uh, and be readily available and that the bank is an obvious target. Uh, And as to the pull factor, the surge of interest in looking at the banks specifically, I think it does line up with the the fraudsters becoming more difficult to get a hold of, and then the banks themselves. One, there's been a lot of cases where it does look at the banks and seeing whether the banks can be fixed with liability. So I suppose that puts the idea in people's heads. But there's also a sense to which I think we see, or certainly I see in my daily life, the number of fraud warnings I get from my bank when I try to send money to people the sort of technologies and the um, steps taken by banks to try and stop fraud, the the fact that they are so prevalent in people's personal lives make them think, well, if there's something going wrong with those processes, perhaps actually I can take the benefit from that error and say that because of those errors, I suffered a lot and therefore I can recover for it. Mm. Yeah, I was was thinking the other day, it's it's remarkable actually. I mean, the, the first... One of these cases I did, uh, an APB fraud, was well over a decade ago now. Um, and at the time, um, COP confirmation of payee checks were, you know, a a a twinkle in uh, in the legislature legislators' eye. Um, and we obviously have all of that now. And now, if you try to make a payment um, over your sort of internet banking app. Uh, you know, you're just you're. It's like a sort of crisp, lit up like a Christmas tree with warnings. This might be a scam. This might be a scam. Um, and I was thinking the other day, my my particular um, uh, bank's uh, app, it it sort of makes you go through this process of uh, I sort of does a sort of deliberative quanti- deliberate contemplative process of asking yourself whether something might be a scam. Are you paying friends and family? Are you paying a service? Are you paying a business? That sort of thing. But 
in every time that I've used it, it always ends up with the same thing, which is we think this payment might be a scam. And you click, you know, you it, obviously it's not, you click through and say, okay, I'm going to make the payment anyway. But I think, you know, it struck me that one of the dangers of that is that you just become inured to it. And the whole purpose of the warning just sort of loses its effect. Um, so I suspect um, that as with most things, with sort of new technologies and these incremental developments, um, where you know that there isn't going to be a panacea um, from the institution's end in sort of trying to stop liability uh, for these sorts of things. Yes, and I, I, it's interesting you say about the um, the frequency that you see these warnings. Uh, I'm sure plenty of people do click through and and do ignore them, much in the same way that plenty of people, myself absolutely included, um, can send to all sorts of terms and conditions and say that, like, yes, I absolutely definitely have read them, um, even though it would probably take me the entire day to, to read through all the terms and conditions that I have signed up to and use on a daily basis. But there we have it. Um, but uh, no, I, I am conscious of it because you know, we see it in our work. So I, I have had situations before where the bank app has said, we're not sure about this, you should phone um, the person you're trying to pay and then confirm your instructions. And I did think, well, it would be pretty bad if I, I just said, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I definitely made that phone call and, and didn't, and it did turn out to be an error. But uh, well, there we go. We're yeah. sensitized to it in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I suppose one um, forthcoming battleground is obviously Quince, the Quince Care duty is being looked at by the Supreme Court. Are we going to see um, these sorts of arguments deployed against crypto platforms, wallet providers, exchanges, um, you know, for allegations that they sort of didn't do enough to prevent a customer from falling victim to a fraud? Potentially. Um, I certainly think there's a, a, as the Quince Care duty is being developed at the moment, and this is all very much subject to what the Supreme Court say, uh, which no doubt they'll say tomorrow that they're going to see a hand down judgment later this week. But um, I think that that is definitely the way in which we are moving. If you look back at how um, Philip has developed the Quince Care duty as initially drafted, it's essentially arising out of the reasonable skill and care owed by the payment provider, um, essentially as an implied term of the contract between the customer and the service provider. Mm -hmm. There have been there's one case where it's been suggested that um, that same duty might apply to a, an e-money institution rather than a conventional bank. Mm -hmm. um, and I happened to see earlier, actually, that in the US, there's a claim that's just been issued against Coinbase, not expressly Quincecare, but in very Quincecare-like terms, mm. um, essentially saying that there were all these red flags as to the payment on my account, you should not have processed it because any reasonable bank or any reasonable crypto exchange should have spotted it. And mm. where I think you could have a particularly interesting discussion in the context of crypto exchanges is what is the standard of a prudent crypto exchange? Yeah. Um, certainly my experience is that the sophistication of exchanges varies very, very widely. Yeah, I suppose as well, um, the type of duties that might be owed to customers may well be informed by what um what sort of regulation what shape regulation takes takes in due course i mean i i remember going back to all of these sort of financial products mis-selling cases that um there were you know it, it was a sort of mifid governed or a, a, a mifid product um to which the you know fca 
handbook applied, then you know there'd be allegations that all of these duties were owed by um, banks to customers to assess suitability and that sort of thing. Um, and there were quite a lot of attempts in the court uh, in the courts to sort of um, populate uh, a common law duty with the content of those statutory duties, even if getting a bit technical now, but even even if the, the claimant wasn't a private person and therefore couldn't sue for breach of those regulatory rules. Um, and, you know, maybe gained a, a little bit of traction. Um, it would be, I, I suppose, you might say, it, you know, if, a, if an exchange is regulated and sort of part of the regulation involves a certain standard of, of AML um, or anti-fraud checks um, to protect customers, then perhaps that type of argument might have a better chance than in the sort of current environment where it's all very much hands off. Yes, I, I think you're right. And I, I suppose the question really comes down to how the regulations end up being drafted, because the other point to bear in mind is that in addition to varying degrees of sophistication, the exchanges vary quite dramatically in terms of what their actual technical structure looks like. Um, some of them are essentially a smart contract sitting there and just doing whatever um, complies with the requirements for an input to generate mm -hmm. a particular output whereas others operate much more like a conventional payment institution that just happens to be dealing with um, crypto assets rather than a conventional form of currency mm. so you can see very good reason why you don't treat those two entities exactly the same and of course there are plenty of traditional financial institutions that will now allow you to deal in crypto so um all down the spectrum um, I suppose that sort of leads on to a slightly broader question, which is, um, from your experience, what are some of the key differences in these cases um, in in the crypto sphere versus a traditional bank payment sphere? I mean, I've often said it, and I'm, I'm sure I've heard other people say the same, which is that in many ways, the legal and procedural differences are not all that great. It's more about practicality, how things work on the mm -hmm. ground. Um, we've already touched on difference in sophistication and structure. And um, certainly I've, I've had some situations where you have quite profitable uh, behind the scenes discussions with exchanges where they are prepared to be uh, perhaps a lot more frank and in some cases uh, quite a lot more generous than banks. I've had one situation where- Giving you your chickens back. Well, precisely. I've had a, a, a slightly naive situation of a, a Scandinavian exchange which simply handed over its customers crypto assets when faced with a proprietary claim coupled with an English freezing order. Um, it's certainly not what I would have advised them to do but there we have it. Um, so you can have those sorts of discussions and uh, there yeah. are... Uh, Sometimes you get lucky. Exactly, so yeah. it's always worth doing. Otherwise the other big difference is obviously in terms of tracing because you don't have to go through that very iterative process of following each step in in the banking chain and getting lots and lots of bank statements. Instead, there's lots of proprietary software we've all got used to using, um, allowing you to home in on the target, the target wallet that much quicker. Mm -hmm. What we need to really grapple with though is how we deal with difficulties in following through that tracing exercise with things like crypto tumblers and cross-chain bridges and all sorts of other technologies, which I do not understand. Mm -hmm. But um, certainly you, you get a, a basic grasp of how the on the face of it straightforward process of tracing a particular 
um, Bitcoin, for example, along the blockchain can get an awful lot more complicated when it gets sliced up, mixed up with others. And also with the crypto exchanges put in there essentially treasury funds. Um, yeah. And that can be a good or a bad thing in, in, the, in one sense, it stops you working out necessarily what happened done with what did the fraudsters do after that particular step. But on the good side, uh, sometimes it gives you quite a good leverage against the exchanges themselves. Say, well, we'd quite like to freeze your central funds wallet, in which case they might suddenly start being quite reasonable in those back-channel communications. Yeah. Uh, I suppose one um, similarity which we've seen, um, I think, in the BitFlyer judgment itself, and you and I were discussing this in a bank context before um, I pressed record, was the difficulty in identifying the correct uh, legal entity uh, under the sort of brand umbrella for for an exchange or a bank, um, and trying to make sure that you've you've named the right one to the to the claim form or the or the application notice. Yes, that that is a, a bit of a complication, and some some of the exchanges are, I think, deliberately a bit obscure as to exactly which legal entity is the party to the relevant contract and what's performing what function. Um, so how you deal with that can be a bit of a challenge. In Bitflyer, uh, they took the quite novel and inventive approach of actually naming all sorts of persons unknown being the entity which is operating, uh, which is named as Binance in Binance's terms and conditions, mm -hmm. whichever Binance entity that may have been. But you do, of course, have to um, go through the hoops of working out, well, if you're going to go down that line, well, what jurisdiction might these unknown entities be in? And uh, with Binance, you can see they've got four or five incorporated uh, entities in different jurisdictions around the world. So potentially having to deal with which of those jurisdictions you're going to go after, um, what you're going to engage, that that can be a bit of a challenge. Mm. I suppose there might also be a uh, distinction between um, a say on the one hand, a theoretical sort of murky exchange that maybe does have different arms in different um, parts of the world, um, but it's sort of deliberately kept a bit unclear, um, in which case I could see real justification for that sort of person's unknown type formulation versus a, uh, a sort of more above board exchange which um, advertises on its website that it's got these different legal entities. And if you're a US customer, then you've signed up with whatever LLC. If you're an English customer, you've signed up with whatever limited, so on and so forth, where I can imagine a court would probably be a bit more reluctant to allow you to take that shortcut. Yes, I think you, you, in any of these situations, in any of the, the cases when you're dealing with the slightly novel procedural points that do arise, in cyberfraud cases, I think as long as you can go to the court and say, "Look, I've, I've genuinely done my best, and I've thought about these issues, and this is how I propose to deal with this problem in front of me," the courts do tend to be quite receptive. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here, um, and I have to admit, I haven't managed to finish your book yet, so I don't know if you um, get into this. Um, but it's a question that um, has sort of always intrigued me because I've, I've never really been able to find a very direct answer to it. And this is about um, ransom payments. So obviously, um, ransom payments are a, a key feature of, um, well, of, of ransomware attacks, and, and, and we all know what a scourge they are. Um, now, in at least one case I can think of, and possibly more, 
um, there has been a, a payment of a ransom by an insurer or perhaps even the, the victim um, itself. And then the claim takes shape as a claim against the person's unknown uh, ransomer. Um, and my question has, is sort of, what's the, the legal theory behind trying to recover a ransom payment in that way? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things that that spring to mind, but I mean, in in one sense, you know, you've entered into a um, a contract with the with the cyber fraudster, the attacker, the hacker. Um, you've got your data back. Um, aren't they entitled to keep your your crypto or your cash? How do you get it back? What's the legal theory behind that? I, I don't. Uh, this is one of those ones which is not a, a settled point. So perhaps this, the transcript of this podcast is going to be cited against us at some point <laughs> in the future. But um, I, it, it's it is an interesting point. I, taking a step back, I like to think the law does tend to come to sensible results and doesn't conjure up completely bizarre situations. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to think that your um, very commercially savvy. Uh, ransomer is not going to be able to insist on their contractual payment, for example. But um, in terms of how you go about actually doing it, the, obviously there'll be personal claims such as unjust enrichment that you could no doubt advance. But the key interest for the victim is to try and get a proprietary claim because that, mm -hmm. of course, makes tracing all the rest of it that much easier. The issue when you start to put into play the sorts of points that you're making, which is, you know, is there not a contract? pay the ransom and we'll give you your um, key to decrypt all your data. If you have a contract, you can't go about uh, in asserting a, a trust over the, the payment proceeds mm -hmm. until you go about and rescind the contract. And this is where I think you then take a step back and you hold on a minute. It doesn't make sense. Very good commercial reasons why you would not pay your ransomer and then send them an email and say, by the way, I'm rescinding the contract and I'm yeah. going to claim my money back because yeah. that's going to be rather self-defeating. So my view on it is that you don't have to actually necessarily rescind the contract and that this is one of a, a sort of gray area of cases along the likes of Halley and Law Society, um, where you have notionally a, a sort of on the face of it contractual arrangement that requires rescission before you can go about tracing. But in reality, these notional contracts are not actually providing any real value to the, mm. the person paying, mm. such that no reasonable fraudster is uh, ransomer is going to think, yes, actually, the, the customer is going to be very satisfied with the, the contract <laughs> we've struck. Um, it's not like that, that there's some case about fraudulent payment uh, uh, share sales. Then well, you might want to keep the shares. Maybe it was a fraud and you bought them through a fraud, but you still got some shares out of it. Yeah. Um, with the ransom payments, I just don't see the need to rescind so you can trace immediately. Yeah. Alternatively, you can hang your hat on that unjust enrichment claim and say that the fraudsters must have known about it. Therefore, it's they know it's unconscionable for them to retain the money. And that gives an independent constructive trust. So yeah. I, I think you can get it on either way. I mean, I suppose that makes sense, taking a step back before you even get into the sort of um, slightly artificial contract. The chance that the overwhelming likelihood is that the cyber attacker is in your system by some sort of deception um, and and made off with some property as a result of that fraud. So I think, you know, um, again, at the risk of uh, this podcast transcript being bandied around in court by a uh, uh, 
counsel, esteemed counsel for for a cyber attacker, um, you'd hope that the court wouldn't have too much trouble imposing a constructive trust in those circumstances. Um, I suppose my final question um, is: there's there's been a real so you, point you mentioned at the beginning about the development of jurisprudence in crypto cases there's been a um a real flurry of persons unknown type injunctions um and, and related um related applications um over the past year or so not too many seem to end up with a public judgment um do you i mean what what becomes of these cases do they go to trial or are they disposed of by default judgment or summary judgment um do you do you have much insight into that from my my small sample i think probably all of the above plus other options is the answer right um, that there are all sorts of reasons why these cases tend to go silent and in some cases because you do your initial application for an injunction and disclosure order and you're going to go after these fraudsters and then you quite quickly realize it's just not economical um so i've had cases where you've done that you've got your freezing injunction and then the client decides to pull the plug before you even issue and claim for so it can end as soon as that. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, you have some cases which essentially are being set up and advanced partly as a means of mitigation. So it's really with an eye to looking against, um, for example, an insurer trying to claim on an insurance policy or, or maybe looking against a bank or some professional services provider um, like your lawyers who've misadvised you or, or not spotted something. And there, it's very much a case of, well, you, you do whatever amount you consider to be reasonable going after the fraudsters to show that you have tried to mitigate your loss, but that doesn't require you to go to the ends of the earth and uh, conduct a full trial if actually it's not going to be particularly productive. So certainly that, that's one reason why you have these things start and not go anywhere. Otherwise, how the claims do end up getting resolved if they um, are, are not dropped for one of those reasons. Um, in some cases, like CMOC, we did go the whole way through and did a, a, a full trial, even mm -hmm. though, unfortunately, no defendants ever turned up for it. Um, Very disappointing. Not surprising. But um, th th that's, I suppose, a, a bit of a, a Rolls-Royce service. The uh, other options are going after default judgment or summary judgment. And certainly, um, I I've had a situation where we've gone for default judgment on one of these cases. Um, there, actually, we did have some of the money launderers um, who were proved to be money launderers turn up uh, and act as litigants in person. <laughs> um, it, and there have been some reports of summary judgment against persons unknown. I, I think Jones and persons unknown quite recently on in the crypto context. Mm -hmm. As to why you go for one of those options, I think ultimately it depends on what you're trying to do with the judgment afterwards. In my case, we thought do, default judgment was good enough because we had assets in the jurisdiction. So it was simply a case of giving something to enforce. Um, in CMOC, we had some perhaps less friendly jurisdictions, so we wanted to make sure we had as few issues as possible when it came around to enforcement. Mm -hmm. And summary judgment, I suppose, somewhere sits in the middle. Some yeah. jurisdictions recognize summary judgment. Some have issues with it, particularly in the context of fraud cases. Right. That there should be summary judgment where there's allegations of dishonesty. And you can, you can see some policy reasons behind that, but some jurisdictions like Hong Kong have actually reversed that rule in the last couple of years, recognizing actually these sorts of cases. Exceptionally, it's appropriate to make summary judgment findings of dishonesty. So I suppose the answer is before you decide, 
try and figure out where the assets are and take local law advice on enforcement. Yeah, pretty much. Makes sense. Great. Um, well, um, any any last plugs for your book? Uh, who should buy this? Other than everybody. Uh, other than everybody. Anybody who wants to prove me wrong. I, I know <laughs> errata are very gratefully received. Um, otherwise, <laughs> it, it is intended to be a, a pretty accessible guide. Um, whether you're dealing with this on a sort of daily basis in practice as a solicitor or a barrister, or perhaps if you're an in-house counsel and want to just have it available to you, hopefully you don't have these sorts of issues. But some of the points that arise are of wider application. So you know, payments going missing as between counterparties, who bears the responsibility for it? What happens if you have slightly rogue employees or agents? Um, or indeed claims against your bank and that those sorts of issues are not limited to the fraud context albeit mm. that the book is is framed through that particular prism excellent um well i will be recommending it um to um everybody i know who um who who um does this sort of work um and i can recommend it to all of the listeners as well um so thank you very much matt um for joining us i believe this is your second outing on the tdm podcast so good to have you back always um, pleasure and uh, yeah, thanks again and see you around. Thanks very much. A huge thanks to Matt for taking part in TDN's Need to Know podcast series. If you made it this far and are still listening, a big thanks to you as well. And if you have something interesting to say about technology and disputes, get in touch at inquiry at disputes.tech or drop me a line directly to sam.roberts at cyklaw.com. We'd love to have you on the series. See you next time.